Hello, the 42 Rugby Weekly listeners. Gavin Casey here. The following podcast was recorded and published on a Thursday, but I'm jumping in here a day later on the Friday to make a correction. In this episode, it is mentioned that Munster's prospective signings of Damien Dialande and Orgy Snyman next year would bring the Southern Province's number of South African players to 11, which is incorrect. There are only five South African imports, be they now Irish qualified or otherwise, currently involved in Munster's playing squad. In total, there are nine Southern Hemisphere imports currently on Munster's books. Add Diolande and Snyman to that and you get 11. But, of course, the impending departures of Albie Mathewson and others will likely reduce that figure by the time of Diolande and Snyman's potential arrivals next year. We also had an erroneous tweet which, by the time you hear this, will have been deleted and replaced with a correction. We apologise for the error, and I've been told by my employers that I must now head for Limerick, where I'll be available for public vloggings outside Donkey Fords between 7am and kickoff tomorrow evening. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie Weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly brought to you in association with Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey back in studio in Dublin and I'm joined in studio by Sean Farrell of Faz Investments Limited. Sean, how are you? Thanks very much, Gavin. I'd just like to say that company is dormant uh, since, since the summer and uh, I'm only 25% stakeholder. So. Coincidentally, it yeah. seemed to be founded around the same time <laughs> when you extended your contract with the 42.e, Sean. Uh, we might get to that later on. We're also joined by Andy Dunn of, uh, I don't know, Dundeal.e. How are you, Andy? <laughs> I'm good, thanks, Gavin. <laughs> we thought we'd have a bit of a come down after the World Cup and maybe for a few days that was the case, although I think that South African story sort of carried us into Tuesday or Wednesday, at least. Uh, Turns out it's been uh, a fairly hilarious week of news as it transpires with uh, Saracens being deducted uh, umpteen points and fined heavily for their alleged financial doping. Uh, Munster look like they're going to land two Springbok World Cup winners and bring them over to these parts, which should be pretty interesting. And obviously, just the club game in particular is back. So there's lots to get into, as well as uh, the release of Joe Schmidt's book, which I think we're all on tender hooks for here in studio, particularly Andy. Uh, <laughs> but first, Andy, um, just because we haven't heard from you since this time last week, your thoughts on uh, what was a pretty memorable World Cup final, if, as it turned out, uh, a fairly one-sided one in the end. Um, yeah, well, I was surprised by the result. I thought um, I there was no, no, no geniuses out there were saying, you know, uh, South Africa, England, New Zealand, I think were probably the top three favourites potentially Wales prior to the World Cup. So seeing um, a South Africa-England final wasn't entirely surprising. I think there's an interesting stat um, that New Zealand have lost four World Cup matches and the team who's beaten them has never won their next match. So that obviously what is required in terms of beating New Zealand um, it, it it's not very economical to beat New Zealand. It takes huge physical effort. I think it takes a psychological toll on teams. And there seems to be, history would suggest now, with, with the uh, the follow-on loss seems to be the norm. So there seems to be a drop-off in, in intensity. There seems to be a drop-off in performance levels, in particularly one week later. So uh, I didn't anticipate that was 
going to happen this time. I thought England were a side that would be able to, uh, they just seemed so strong and and they had so many variables in, in their strengths uh, that I thought they were going to go in and do a job on South Africa actually. But um, for the purists amongst us, it is, it's great. I saw Raj had, had tweeted that, you know, no scrum, no win at the top level at the, the most important stage. Um, yeah, they, they deconstructed that English scrum. I think there was an element of bad luck when Kyle Sinclair got knocked out by his own player, for sure. Um, you know, they'll probably look back on that and go, the gods weren't smiling on them in those first five minutes. And that that can change momentum pretty quickly. They only ar- arrested that decline when Marler came on the field, it seemed so, uh, and possibly too late at that stage. Um, but... Uh, to look on it from a, a more South African angle, I think they they were outstanding because they they went after one area that they said they would go after, and Erasmus, you know, laughed even in the in the build up. He was asked, "Will you change tactics? Will you do anything different?" You know, he 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 told the world what they were going to do. They went and did it, and that's that's pretty ballsy stuff to go out and do in a World Cup final. Their their physical presence was well kind of versed beforehand but to go and do it against that England front five in particular I think was uh, was a pretty impressive performance they were able to open it up they obviously had the likes of that brilliant finish by Colby um, I think was it Mapimpi who made the inside pass or no he's finished it sorry was it McCann you am sorry yeah um, yeah they two two really nice creative moments as well but they had done the they'd done the the punishment they'd done the spade work at that stage and were thoroughly deserved and uh, uh the feel good story being obviously the the captain and how he spoke afterwards and what it potentially could do for a pretty divided tragic country at this stage so um that you couldn't begrudge them it was great to see what it means for that nation as well so all in all, happy to see them winning it. Just a bit surprised by England's uh, drop off from seven days earlier. Yeah, two things to which you alluded there: uh, the drop off, firstly, and also just that little sprinkling of luck required to win a tournament. Um, we had a question in the forty-two members WhatsApp group, which was a buzz throughout the World Cup, and we figured there might be even a little bit of a drop off there afterwards. But no such uh, no such luck in that instance. People are still uh, chatting away, and it's good fun. Uh, so I asked for a couple of questions last night. Got one from Colin Quinn, which, to be totally honest with you, Colin, we were, we were slightly laughing at to begin with when we were reading the start of it. But like, it actually kind of touches upon some of the things that Andy was talking about there. So Colin says, uh, maybe this is too out there, but is is it worth either changing the format of the World Cup or putting less emphasis on the success or failure of teams at the World Cup and the overall judgment of said teams, coaches over a four-year cycle. It seems pretty clear that the luck of the draw plays a huge part, i.e. New Zealand ruthlessly beat South Africa in the opening game. South Africa by chance land on an easier side of the draw and end up lifting the cup having had only one really impressive performance, the final. New Zealand, meantime, (laughs) back up opening win with an almost perfect performance against Ireland, but then couldn't go back to back uh, and are victim of the draw and a phenomenal England team. So he says that it seems chance, luck of the draw can play a massive part in the overall progress in the tournament. And thus judging coaches and teams on the bottom line at the Rugby World Cup is a bit ridiculous, he says. 
if New Zealand had thrown their first games, <laughs> they'd have likely strolled to victory in a final after uh, an easy quarterfinal and semi-final. Would like to see more recovery time between knockout games myself. And the conversation kind of continued. Our, our good friend David Jangles Gavigan, who who like Colin has fired in a good few questions and brilliant questions uh, over the course of those members podcasts. Um, he said he would usually mostly agree with that statement. But the fact that New Zealand and England had an extra week off to prepare for the quarterfinals uh, would sort of lean him towards disagreeing. Um, but Colin's overall point is that a quarterfinal, semifinal, final with six, seven day turnarounds between them to go back to back to back is proving almost historically impossible. Do you have any thoughts on that, Shawnee? It's extremely difficult. I mean, the the drop-off was essentially the story of, of the World Cup from what New Zealand did to Ireland, what England then did to New Zealand, and what South Africa slowly, slowly, slowly ramping up on the other side of the draw did, did to England. Um, yeah, I mean, but that's kind of been on the way in rugby for... The past number of years, just the the level of intensity required to hit your top markers, to hit your very best performance, it's just not possible probably to to sustain it a week a week later. And part of it's emotional, part of it's physical. Like it's, it's an emotional game, it's a collision sport, so you kind of you have to factor in that mental side of it. And returning to that level a week later is is so so difficult. Like. Whether that's fair, what are their format? I mean, the World Cup's long enough as it is. I don't know how how you change that uh, to make it more fair, per se. A raffle or something? <laughs> a raffle. <laughs> I mean, every sport is going to have its very peak level uh, and it, it it's going to come down to this moment, this exact time. And I don't know how you get around making that a more level playing field. There was the, like the, the global season that World Rugby presented was one such way so that you play over the course of a year but even that is was going to culminate in four or five weeks straight of the best teams playing against each other in November and I think that's why the players rose up against it because they figured that wasn't going to show their best side yeah yeah like it, it is like sorry when I said that, when I said that we were slightly laughing at Colin's question like it just reminded me of like well wouldn't that be great for Ireland really <laughs> <laughs> we'd be, we'd still be among the best teams in the world if it wasn't judged on a World Cup. And obviously the World Cup is kind of the apex of the sport on which international sport is judged in, across all sports. And, and luck factors into the, the equation in nearly all of those sports as well um, in terms of the draw. But it's not an unfair point either, Andy, that you are somewhat reliant on luck. You need a little bit of a break, like, for example, with the greatest respect, a quarterfinal against maybe Japan as opposed to somebody more physically dominant or somebody with a monster pack, um, if you are going to go the whole way. And it, like nobody has really booked that trend over the last two or three World Cups in which this has been a factor. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't see any alternative, really. I can't see a better alternative than the current setup. And I just, it's a byproduct of how rugby has evolved. It's, it's way more physical than it used to be. And it, and it, It'll probably have to plateau at some stage. Uh, I would have thought at some stage, whether that's, um, you know, you're seeing players can always improve it to a small degree, but I, I would have thought the physicality will ultimately plateau and then we might, it works in cycles. You might see a a change in or, or a bigger 
concentration on skill levels, for example. And uh, if we take Ireland, for example, um, the skill levels did clearly drop off, but the emphasis on physicality was was probably the key coaching point in the last two years. So, um, and that's, you know, that that's partly necessary, but also I don't ever think the skill levels should be ignored or the execution of skills. Um, whereas New Zealand would have, would have concentrated on that hugely in the last eight years um, from from Graham Henry initially through to Hansen um, and, and even broken down into how they divide up every single solitary training session they do and the ratio of time they spend specifically on individual skill level and acquisition of new skills, whereas a lot of other teams and Ireland would be included in this would spend a lot of time on uh, rehearsing team plays and patterns, which effectively makes you better at running sequences but doesn't make you individually in more command of your craft so that if you get a team that can be more skillful it means you've got more economy in your game and New Zealand over a hundred years have an 80 percent plus success record in winning games so they mightn't be able to back up in this world cup but over a longer period of time they win the most games I think it's largely it's a lot to do with the economy they can win games with and teams that play concentrate more and more on physicality are going to be more vulnerable to these weak weak turnarounds week to week turnarounds in major competitions that they can't quite back up because I think it takes such a huge physical toll on everyone to go and win these games New Zealand seem to bubble along slightly below everyone else's exertion levels um, and still still manage to squeeze out top performances over over longer periods and I think that's you know sustainability is a buzzword in general at the moment but they do have a sustainability to how they operate which augurs well for them I think South Africa Ireland England there's a, there's there's a huge Wales there's there's a huge question mark around the ability to just keep backing that up all the time um I don't I don't I don't think I have enough space in my small brain to try and compute more structural changes to a season or or, or challenging a World Cup format. I, there's not a lot else they could do over the duration of time. You know, groups, group stages and knockouts, all also trying to grow the game on a global level, give everyone a shot. And you do see like Japan got a more favourable job because they were hosts and some weaker nations got three and four day turnarounds. Um, that could be looked at maybe, but I don't, feel sorry for the bigger teams. They're just going to have to get on with it and this survives at the fittest, ultimately. At the risk of making a deep cut into cliche territory, like you make your own look as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's weaker half of the draw, supposedly. We think of, that, think of it that way because Japan were there. But that was the spot Ireland were planning the World Cup on being in. It should have been, <laughs> had everything gone to plan, it would have been mm. South Africa, Ireland. And then do South Africa... Mow, mow over Ireland as easily or an inform Ireland as easily as they would have to, are they then informed to take on Wales or had France not imploded all these little bits of luck that Sebastian Vahamina didn't make for his for his team mm. you know they all feed into that being the weaker quote yeah. unquote side of the draw mm. and South Africa are allowed to ramp up through the through the tournament and get there in mm. perfect condition to to win it out Ah, yeah, we made an absolute balls of it. All right. Uh, before we move on from the World Cup, Shawnee, there's a book coming out uh, written by our former head coach, 
Joe Schmidt, written literally by him. It's a literal autobiography. Uh, one last parting blow to the rugby media that he didn't ask anybody to ghostwrite it to our knowledge anyway. Um, are you looking forward to reading it? Yeah, I think it's obviously going to be interesting to see um, deep inside the, the mind of Joe Schmidt or depending on what he decided to commit to paper. We're Myself and Gavin Cooney were actually talking in the office in recent weeks about who would he get to write his book and being a, a former English teacher himself, I just had a suspicion that he might be leaning leaning to back himself to do the job you know <laughs> and uh, I don't know maybe maybe there is a, a ghost within the ghost but um, yeah no it just certainly seems like he's written it himself maybe probably over the course of a, a few years with diaries and little thoughts and nuggets that um, are sure to jump out whenever we get our hands on a few pages will it he tends to be explain as much as he's going to explain in his weekly press conferences well there. we'll see I we'll mean see. it could have been a ploy all along save it for the book <laughs> he might be underwriting even more and, and more explanations behind the explanations but um, yeah no we can only can only wait with bated breath to see mm. what angle he takes on every little decision he's made over the past six years <laughs> I'm fascinated to hear what his writing process was and did he stick to it um, even when th when times got tough Andy you know <laughs> if you were a player would you be a little bit nervy like to know that your head coach who, uh, under whom you've operated for several years, is releasing a book so soon after stepping away from the role where he kind of has, no, I mean, he has nothing essentially to lose uh, in writing this book, given his, um, his detachment. I would, no, I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd be worried if I was a player. Uh, I'd be more worried if I was a player who was put in a room and forced to, to read it just from, <laughs> from a whale point of view. Um, I think... Uh, no, I, I, it's, it's, um, it's, it's happens in sport a lot. It's, it's his prerogative to write a book. Um, I, you know, interesting that he, he's written it himself. That's kind of been in keeping with his character for a long time. He's probably doing the illustrations, the publishing and printing it as well himself too, lest anyone have any input. But, um, no, it's not something I'll be reading anyway. Fair. Yeah. Oh, best of luck to who? I think I'll probably have to read it. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's different. You're gonna, I think you're doing the audiobook for it, are you? Yeah, I will. Yeah, that's going to be the, the that's yeah. that's going to be the podcast in two weeks' time. Just an audiobook, <laughs> chapter by chapter. It's interesting that uh, him and Eddie Jones are releasing books on the same day, and uh, Eddie's is going to be ghostwritten by Donald McRae. So, be interesting the way up the writing styles of where, Donald McRae against Joe Schmidt. Where the hell does Donald McRae find the time Unreal. to crank out these books? By the way, Donald McRae is the uh, current guest or the guest for this week's episode of Behind the Lines with Gavin Cooney. Members.the42.ie if you want to sign up there. Andy is uh, obviously, you know, we've, we've been waiting for weeks for Andy to, to get that little message that Andy signed up. But, you know. Contract. I want to see a contract. contract. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Joe Schmidt versus Eddie Jones. It's like that time when Kanye West and 50 Cent went head to head on album sales, you know. Uh, best of luck to both of them. It should be uh, should be interesting. I'm sure there'll be a few tidbits here and there. Um, we also now need to talk about the return of club rugby, which actually happened a good few weeks ago. We've just been somewhat ignoring it, at least on the podcast while the World Cup was going on. But Shawnee, you were in Cardiff yesterday. Yeah. Um, tell us about it. I'd say it was quite interesting, was it, in light of this week's events? Yeah, these days are always a mess. Like you get however many captains and coaches wedged into a room and yeah, you're told to go interview them as 
<laughs> quick as you can and as often as you can and get as many in the bag as, as possible. So yesterday wasn't, it could have been worse. <laughs> the uh, sort of premiership, got it, got it <laughs> the premiership clubs were unleashed on us in, in the morning time. And uh, yeah, normally at these events you're scratching around thinking, God, what happened in the Premiership last season? But thankfully, Saracens had a big story for us and uh, made everything really interesting. Kind of um, Chris Robshaw, Harlequin Slanker and uh, Rob Baxter, the Exeter Chiefs Director of Rugby. Yeah, really had a proper go at them and uh, dancing on, on what looks to be their grave, essentially, of a, a 35 point uh, points deduction. And what's the, what's the fine they got over... It's around, it's around six million euro, hmm. I think. But yeah, basically Rob Baxter was sounded happy enough if people were talking about stripping titles of Saracens that I think he's content that three would be coming his way. Now he didn't kind of go out campaigning for it himself, but he was happy that that talk was floating in the air. Chris Robshaw throwing the word cheat around like it was going out of style. Oh, and, Robshaw uh, gave them an absolute shooing, didn't he? It absolutely. Like, yeah, it was great. It was, <laughs> Even right down to how it's tarnished the sport of rugby essentially and, and likening it to, to doping in in uh, other sports, shall we say. Hmm. Um, Andy, what are your thoughts on the whole situation? Obviously, you would be, uh, you would have played against Saracens many times back, way back when, I was going to say, not that long ago, but, and they would have, would have always uh, invested in some of these foreign uh, talisman and uh, kind of exotic, expensive players, even though, when you were playing against them, it wasn't so much a factor in their success. Yeah, they, they. I think they had a very moderate amount of success in the late nineties. Um, maybe similar to how Newcastle uh, back in the late nineties won a league with Twigamala and Wilkinson and uh, some some big marquee names. But Saracens weren't a team that um, were at the top at that stage it was much more probably Leicester Tigers almost exclusively for about a 10 year period but um, Saracens weren't competing there um, and whenever we played them over in England it was you've I certainly viewed it as a a day you kind of look forward to because in a nice compact stadium in Vicarage Road you might get a you would often get a pretty big crowd there and you'd play, I mean, played against Castaned, you played against top players, but you knew you weren't playing against a brilliant side. Um, and I, you know, I knew a number of guys who played there, left there. Um, you're talking maybe from an Irish point of view, far back as, as legendary tight head Paul Wallace from the 97 Lions. And um, they always paid above the odds it's not no big secret they paid way above the odds they paid way above the market rate and that's how they acquired players and they did the same with coaches and it was always with Nigel Ray's hand on that um, so it is I mean there's it is laughable enough when you hear the 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 comment that we you know we didn't flaunt the salary cap and we didn't mean to mislead anyone that there were direct links from Nigel Ray to players bank accounts you know it's it's it, you know how quite they think that's a plausible explanation I don't know um, but yeah the uh, interesting to see Rob Shaw going hard out as well because he's I'm sure he's a bit damaged still from and most people in Harlequins were, were damaged from the bloodgate and they you know that was a huge huge story and they were they were dragged through this shit non-stop for 
months on end and there was recriminations and people lost their jobs and their livelihoods and you know when you see effectively the same it is the same I don't consider it any different it is cheating as well so he want they want their they want their uh, pound of flesh now and I can understand that in in a cutthroat professional environment if you bend the rules and you get absolutely hauled over the coals and you find out another group or when you know another group's been doing it for way longer you gotta go for the kill um, and the other comment I'd have is Baxter it's really it's enjoyable to watch Baxter get annoyed about it because they're the antithesis of everything Saracens is they're, they're homegrown tiny budget built it all up from scratch climbed up through the divisions they're a real wholesome success story and they're so close to success so it's quite enjoyable it's like the little man taking on the machine um, so yeah interesting quotes I'm sure it made for a, a bit more of an interesting day Sean. yeah it livened yeah. up yeah. the morning anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from a, a logistical standpoint though looking at Saracens in the Premiership minus 35 points and just with this hanging over them and like I, I, there's phew, haven't been too many suggestions as to how they might even correct this for next season for example but uh, are we talking like relegation dogfight for them it just seems inconceivable given the quality they have on their books but it's a massive hit to take yeah minus 35 they, they will go into a, a relegation fight now whether they slip into that bottom place will be they'll have to have a big drop off in performance to, to get near the bottom I think even you look you look at last season's table take 35 points off it and, and Newcastle Falcons are still away well might have been less than 10 points adrift at the bottom um, the season after the Lions tour when they had a, a big drop off which you couldn't see happening a bit again this season with, with all their World Cup involvement nine players in the final as they were happy to <laughs> advertise <laughs> to everyone before this happened um, even, yeah even then like well it was a particularly bad season for London Irish and they were well adrift at the bottom so they'll be in a dogfight the Wolfpack but uh, yeah you'd fancy that they have it'll, more than enough resources to, to pull out of it it'll be interesting I think regardless of the uh, indiscretions they've been a brilliant team for about four seasons and you can you can't entirely buy success you need very good coaching you need um, good leadership you need just to get cohesion and coherence in their group. That has to be admired. They've been a very, very strong side and they've played a lot of good rugby. But I, I from a cynical point of view, it'd be interesting to see you know, that they, anyone who gives themselves a nickname, you'd always have a question mark about in life. And they gave themselves the Wolfpack nickname and then spread it around. I'd be interested to see how much of a Wolfpack they really are when their wages are halved and do they go somewhere else. So uh, if they stick together like a true Wolfpack now when they're in times of trouble, it'll be instructive. Um, in the next season or two the lone wolf dies and the pack survives absolutely yeah yeah. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fascinating to see how that one plays out we obviously need to talk about the uh, Irish provinces as well and uh, Shawnee, Johnny Sexton was in Cardiff as well we, we should touch upon that uh, was he in good form? not in great form but I think understandably so it was probably just over what two and a half weeks since the quarter final exit and I think he admitted as much still very raw um, said pretty much that it'll be raw for the rest of people's lives the, the the guys who don't get to go to the next World Cup anyway will be nursing 
some sort of sense of uh, disappointment at having at having not performed really was the underlying sentiment that that was what really gnawed away at them the fact that they hadn't hit their hit their hit the heights of their performance that they hadn't um, pushed on from 2018 and he spoke a bit about a review that was going on and how um, there'll be an outside company and coming to talk to the players maybe giving them that access to a, an open and honest conversation um, but that's all going to feed back into the IRFU review again so yeah it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it he actually said that you know they're not going to throw anyone under the bus, but they have to stick together at the same time, which kind of sounds a bit, a little bit conflicting. And, and I don't know how much. Yeah, there'll still be there'll still be plenty of players in that team who have to stick together, play together, work together. Yeah, so it'll be um, how to come out of it will be will be intriguing to find out. The external company looking at things is actually something you touched upon, Andy, a couple of weeks ago, like where. You said that should have been nearly done preemptively, like just to take the, I guess, take the pressure off um, that had been building seemingly uh, for a sustained period before I, the World Cup. Well, I think it's an interesting way to look. It's it's a different way maybe to look at professional sport. It's traditionally very, very closed doors because if you compare it to a high performing business, they, it's, it's not every move is... Uh, parsed and analysed on a public level uh, until something goes drastically right or, or drastically wrong. But, uh, you know, the reason sports sides tend to close up is because almost every, you know, not training session, but certainly every performance is analysed every week and it's up for public debate and consumption. So they tend to close in and, and not let anyone else come in and it's us against the world and teams feed off that a lot. But I, I wonder, you know, in a at the very highest level when you can see things are going wrong, which I think everyone could, in from whether the, it's really easy to fix things in hindsight. I wonder is there an opportunity at, at I'm talking generally in sport to to bring in a company what to arrest the slide, not to deal with the fallout afterwards because it's too late obviously um, because what will happen is you might get you may get some um, clarity from this this you know in the interview process with players I don't know how much you'll get because half of them are going to most of them are going to be involved they won't throw people under a bus I think if, if there was anonymity and they could do that in a multitude of ways online anything you know anonymity and actually say what you think you, you might get more value but then you know, I wonder where companies are seeing a slide in revenue or something, you know, they might often bring in a management consultancy and look at, it doesn't always change things, but they might look at being proactive as opposed to reactive after the event. I don't know if it's feasible, but sometimes for sports, I, you know, I, I at a very, very simple level, um, before I had, well, just as I had turned professional, I was playing in Old Beverly Rugby Club and I always admire management who will look at other options. We were on a slide. We'd been relegated from Division 1, continually playing poor. And they brought in Liam Griffin, who had just won the uh, three years after he'd won in All-Ireland with Wexford. So different sport, top-level manager, came in and just helped us for a couple of weeks. And his I can always remember how his different outlook shaped 
our coaches' mindset for the remainder of the season, how different players viewed it. And I I always think it's a positive that if you've got if you've got enough confidence and self-awareness in what you do and you surround yourselves by people who can who can help out maybe and they don't have to take over your job they can leave it's consultancy so mm. i i think that could be a um a positive from these reviews it, or well maybe not make them reviews it's just be an ongoing thing if things are going wrong but easier said than done now. and in sporting sense it it Nearly doesn't have to be even that formal. To, yeah, yeah, it can absolutely. Be an outside voice coming in at the right time. I think Eddie Jones was talking about his 2007 World Cup with South Africa and how he basically went in and he was more or less a sounding board for, for Jake White. And I think, well, maybe it's Jake White's account that he, Eddie Jones was just there to say, yeah. You're going, you're going well. Keep at it. Keep, <laughs> yeah, keep yeah. But uh, yeah, and you wonder did Felix essentially fill that role a bit for South Africa? We don't know what what's going on inside their camp, but just that outside voice can be so refreshing, and you don't realise you need it on, until it's there. Maybe that uh, it can just change a, a dynamic or open a window, stop everyone being being a little bit stale for everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, certainly seems as though Munster have brought in a couple of outside voices in their coaching staff uh, during the offseason, although both Graham Rowntree and Stephen Larkin will kind of become inside voices over time. Uh, two new recruits, it seems like, on the playing front as well. Andy, two Springbok World Cup winners. What do you make of them as individual signings for Munster next year? Um. Well, in isolation, I think Diolando is probably the most consistent centre at the World Cup. He he performed brilliantly throughout. So in isolation, you look at that and you go, who was one of the best guys in his position on the global scale and won the tournament, has a winner's medal and you sign him. It's, you could, you can't argue against it all that much. But I, I would, um, Snyman is, I'm sure, capable of making pretty strong impact too but I it just troubles me a little bit the overall trend that, that will bring their quota of South Africans to 11 when the two of them join um, if they had you know um, I don't I certainly don't buy into them bringing in young unproven foreign players um, in my own background and history I think you know Leinster made some incredibly bad signings and incredibly good ones and one of the better ones was Nathan Spooner who came in who was about 30 years old who had about 10 Australian caps and I was 19, 20, 21 I just learned a huge great bloke learned a huge amount from him and that's where there's value in bringing these guys in but also Nathan Spooner came in because I was 19 or 20 and Emmett Farrell who was an absolutely super player, who's now on the Leinster backroom staff still, he got a career-ending knee injury. So we were the two starting out halves and they were going with that. He was, Emmett was 23, I was 19, 20. Emmett got a career-ending injury and much as I'd have liked it, they weren't going to entrust their season to a 19-year-old who was very, very green, you know, in terms of, of tactical game appreciation and awareness. So a spooner coming in there was a necessity probably and, and a huge value to the group and for me personally. Alende, Dale Ende coming in when you've got four very good established centres there um, who've come through a system. I don't know. It's That's looking at it not in isolation. Like, what does it do to the culture of the group? What does it do to 
lower levels in Munster, academy levels. Um, why are they bringing in so many people that are, you know, below Dialande and Snyman who aren't really um, top level players as well? And I, it's not a direction or trend. I don't like the look of it um, at the moment for, for Irish rugby or Munster rugby. Um, and we have no lack. There's, there's, there's not like there's a lack of quality coming through from the schools competitions and the club competitions. There's loads of quality there. So it's a bit worrying. Shawnee, your thoughts on it? Yeah, the, your case, Sandy, sounds a bit like what, what Greg Casey's in at the minute. He's like obviously highly touted, looks like being the next man in behind Conor Murray and mm. he's currently sitting behind Albie Mathieson because because he's just that wee bit too young. Like um I think Dale Ende and Simon are, are fantastic players. Yeah. But I it, agree, it, it's I think, probably yeah. not the it's not the personnel, it's it's the the ideology behind it. Yeah. But in all these cases of, of NIQs coming in, it's it's what they bring to the group, what they what they add kind of to the culture that that's different and in DLN's case, agreed. Like the Munster just have have so much ability and firepower, and similar players. When you consider Chris Farrell, I mean that's going to be yeah, yeah. the boshiest midfield uh, ever seen. That they've no shortage of firepower there. So that's why it's a it's a strange, strange uh, scenario that that we're looking into. It's um should be said that probably Munster probably would have preferred if we, everyone had waited before this, this news filtered out that they haven't made their announcement and they probably have to have a lot of moving around uh, in their ranks to figure out who's who's going to be moved on. Um, what's his name? Sorry, Snyman. He's, he's the exciting one for me. I think the Allende, while he was consistent during the World Cup, he doesn't add as much as, as you'd like monster to add to their to their backline to their attack but yeah. but Snyman's such an <laughs> he just always causes havoc when he's on the field he, he destroys malls he offloads out of tackle he, yeah he absolute havoc raiser he's kind of a, hum, a human wrecking ball yeah. that but you could build it you could build a, a pack around him maybe as a talisman but I think Dialende's very while while consistent and high performing mm. how how dissimilar is he to Goggin um, you know, to Scannell. Mm. Well, Scannell's probably a bit more of a footballing player, but um, not really in the way he's utilised either. Yeah, yeah. Arnold, you know, they're they're strong, physical guys who make their hits, and you know, there's a lot of same same going on there. And and uh, you know, they they could have done maybe worse than if I don't know. Was Matheson getting an extension? He is. I think this might be his last season. His last I'm season. not sure when his current deal. But well, like, if I was been. looking at South Africa, I'd look yeah. at her three brilliant scrum halves. They have three incredible scrum halves and you probably wouldn't have the money to get Faf to Clerk. But Chanches and Cobus Reinach, like they're class players. Yeah, but then Munster brought in Nick McCarthy, they've Chasey yeah, coming yeah. up, yeah. you've Murray and then you've Matthewson mm. and like... Yeah, but Murray hasn't, Murray hasn't played well. Yeah. So like you've got, you're well stacked there as well yeah. and there's also a, a bit of a, a blockage even for the likes of Casey or yeah. for Cronin and, and potentially McCarthy like, as well. Yeah, I, that's, that's the... the Really underlying trend that's worrying, yeah. If the, with the two of them are going to join, but it looks, but that's 11 South Africans. You know, I went, I my, one of the first games I ever commentated on, I went to Leinster against Montpellier. It was like back, it was the week after Anthony Foley had passed away. And uh, I was over with David McIntyre in 
doing a, a live commentary for Off the Ball, and we went through the the Montpellier program, and we were laughing. There was thirteen South Africans in it, and we because Jake White was in charge. And we were like, these guys just throw money at the problem, blah, blah, blah. And you're looking at Munster, the, the total, you would have thought the opposite from, from a culture and values point of view. Three years later, have ele- we'll have 11 South Africans in their squad. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a worrying trend. Yeah, it, they, could, they could turn out to be some of the, the best signings the province has made, though. But the ideology behind it is worrying. Um, It'll, yeah, it'll be intriguing to see how everything pans out and how they how they balance that squad and whether they move some of those eleven out and um, to yeah because it needs balance it needs needs more of those of those um, homegrown monster players really to to keep that um, identity within within that squad. Yeah, there does seem to be a, somewhat of a conveyor belt there again if you look at the twenties last year and things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for monster. There, there was a really brilliant email from Joe O'Darty that we got. And um, to be honest, we, we've sort of touched upon it all there. Like he was actually mentioning the the uh, blockade, I guess, in front of the likes of Casey and making reference to Matthewson's extensions. Uh, so thanks very much for that, Joe. And hopefully we've kind of addressed it over the course of that conversation. The other three provinces then, Sean, before we wrap, I kind of uh, have not managed time well on this podcast, but I've been enjoying the chat. Um, how are things going, generally speaking, in the Pro 14, Sean, is what I'm asking you, really. Yeah, Leinster are flying it. They're um, five from five, mowing down all before them, except maybe Zebra, who are a pesky, pesky Italian gnat, uh, causing problems to to a few teams. I think that 3-0 win away to Zebra for Leinster was was the one game when um, you really think they, they might have lost or in previous seasons would have lost, but managed to keep a clean sheet miraculously and, and uh, kept their winning run going I think Connacht Connacht or Munster are, are at a level I think there might be a point between them at the top of the other conference and um, yeah they're both in, in great form as well so it's Interpros are uh, wetting our appetite for this weekend to see them all facing off against one another Who has uh, stood out for you Sean just over the course of the season I it, like funnily enough just while we were talking about Munster centres I got the impression watching a little bit of Dan Goggin like this season that he was going to have a really big year and now maybe that won't be at, like he can still have a great year I'm sure but just that it'll be a little bit more difficult to get game time um, have there been players across the board that you've kind of that have kind of sprung up and caught your notice yeah Goggin's been, been great to see him back in, in flying form he's uh, he had real muscular presence in that monster midfield isn't he just he's kind of agile as well which uh, adds a lot to their attack uh, JJ Hanrahan I think is a real return to form for him he just felt he was never the same player once he went to Northampton but these World Cup periods they give you such a long pre-season and such a good chance to reset everything and, and he seems to have benefited from that and definitely in, in partnership with, with Albie Matheson as uh, the aforementioned I think he's they looked in, in sublime form against Cardiff Blues um, yeah uh, JJ Hanron hasn't been the same player since the 2009 Bone Shield semi-final uh, but Andy there's a question here from Cloda in the WhatsApp group um, and it's in relation I suppose to the fact that JJ Hanron is getting a lot of game time now and, and will continue to do so we presume because Joey Carberry still has a bit to go before he returns to action and uh, Cloda was just asking is the case of Joey Carberry in the case sorry of Joey Carberry how did the RFU player welfare system allow him to play during the Rugby World Cup 
I suppose is the uh, his the prolonged absence that he now faces a yes. failing on behalf of the player welfare system in that he was probably he probably took to the field in less than optimal physical health. Um, I think I'd sit firmly on the fence on this because he it's not to his it was clearly not to his best physical welfare to rush him back but the World Cup is every four years and I I hazard a guess if Joey was given a choice he'd have taken the chance to go to the World Cup with half a leg so that's just part of that's just part of being a professional sportsman and I think in in most cases players are it's oh, it's very very rare that a fella is feeling 100% in, in fine fettle you know fresh they're usually carrying things and they're adrenaline monkeys. They're just relying on adrenaline to get them up on through the warm-up sometimes to get through the game and then they're patched back together. Um, that's why they do such heavy pre-season. It's like building a reservoir of muscle mass and, you know, cardiovascular fitness and all the things they need, the anaerobic stuff, the speeds, the stop-start nature, the up and down off the floor and then the like any like a boxer when they're face hardens up to punches you know it's literally that's part of the the prep work so it's not outlandish to say okay joey wasn't right but you know he's coming and it's because joe schmidt wanted him rightly so and and joey carberry was like you better bring me like you know that's that i think i don't think there was any um you know, abuse of welfare. I think I, I would have been fairly confident that they sat down in a room and said, look, if this is really not, really not right and you just can't run, you you know, what's your decision on it? And I'm sure he'd have probably put his hand up and said, I don't think I can run, but you can probably get by with a few painkillers and a bit of treatment and stuff like that for a period of time. But I think it was Van Graan's comments yesterday, you know, he's obviously a bit annoyed by it because... It's his player, and they're not gonna they're not gonna patch him up and keep him going because he'll break down in a couple of weeks again. So they they bear the brunt of it. That's that sometimes that's tough luck. But I I think players aspire to play in World Cups, and sometimes he, there's a fallout physically. So such are the joys. Yeah. Uh, Shawnee, as you mentioned, Interpols this weekend. Uh, the reason why we're not kind of getting into them in. The usual level of detail is because as we record this, we don't actually have the teams. They're going to be um, announced shortly. And it was either have the teams or have Andy. I think we made the right decision, <laughs> right as per usual. Uh, but Connacht hosting Leinster in a kind of a general sense. Um, how do you see it playing out? Uh, two teams basically in reasonable nick and reasonable form. Yeah, I think Leinster are always um, wary of that trip to Galway. I think they've had a few pastings over the years over there, no matter what sort of form Connacht are in. And uh, Connacht are in pretty rude health in in the last five games anyway. Connacht have big trouble in in the tight five. They've lost um, Paddy McAllister to injury, Gavin Thornbury, Quinn Rue are all out injured. So, yeah, it's hard to see Leinster slipping up again. Um, especially when they're aware that there's a trap waiting on them, that they'll uh, and they have their own a few of their own World Cup contingent filtering back in. You think it lights a Reese Ruddock who's surely primed for game time, haven't been um, left out or left on, left on the sidelines for the latter stages of the World Cup and the form he was in. Um, so yeah, I reckon Leinster will edge that one, a feisty one down in Galway. Um, Munster. 
and Ulster then. Yeah, <laughs> Ulster looked in, in weird form at home to Zebra, but it was an absolutely horrible night up there. And Zebra, as we've we've touched on, they have Ian Nagel and Mick Carney kind of um, doggedly, doggedly working through the engine room to make things really difficult for, for teams. Um, yeah, I think Munster, again, they'll, they've been in pretty fluid form. I think the win away to Cardiff was a big statement for them and how they intend to go about the season and... Yeah, I think uh, I think Munster will maybe edge that as well. Leinster and Munster then away and home victories for Shawnee. Thank you, gents. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Thank you to everybody for the questions in the members WhatsApp group and to Joe for his question over email. We'll be back again next week. Uh, and until then, have a good weekend. Enjoy the Interpros and take it easy. I don't think we've met before. But I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and he 